Alex and this is the Geordie Guide to Happiness. We're on to episode number seven and we're very glad you've joined us for another happiness interview. I'm here in our virtual studio with just Dom today. Hi Dom. Hello. Where's everyone gone? I don't know. (laughs) I think uh, they're on, (laughs) Chris and Kath are on holiday this week aren't they? So it's just you and me. Oh how inconsiderate. I don't know. You know. It's just not on is it? No. <laughs> it's that time of year though isn't it when I don't know about you but you get lots of out of office replies and yeah people yeah. are either taking time off or they're trying to juggle the six week holiday with childcare and stuff yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> I know that juggle all too well I feel like I've been on one big summer holiday though since March I don't need another six weeks <laughs> no no it's going to break some people <laughs> it's, it's gonna... <laughs> yeah I mean, even as a, even as a kid, I found uh, the six-week holiday too long. By sort of week four, that was it. You know, I was one of those strange ones that was happy to sort of go back to school. But yeah, yeah. have you done anything nice this week? Um, been making some art. Been working on my own, some of my own projects. Nice. Um, that's always nice. Well, I took the girls surfing at Tynemouth today, which um, nice. I was. Uh, I was worried it was going to turn into another expensive activity for them to do because <laughs> it's uh, they do all sorts of things already. But uh, Rowan was definitely happy running around in the water. You can tell she's happy because she sort of jumps up and down uncontrollably like Tigger. She just sort of just goes all <laughs> bouncy when she's really Amazing. pleased and really excited about something. So, uh, yeah, the weather was good out in the waves Excellent. for a couple of hours. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that was quite nice. Yeah, this is the the best time to get learning how to do it, I think, because it's not so cold that you can feel your bones contracting in the North Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> shall we shall we introduce this week's guest interview, Dom? Yes. Okay, yeah, so I interviewed Sid Smith this week. Sid Smith is a professional freelance writer, and he's been doing that for over 25 years now. He's written about music and musicians and has featured in magazines such as Q, Mojo, Uncut, Classic Rock, Record Collector, and many others, and many I've, other publications. I've heard of them. Yep, they're, yeah. they're, they're well known. And he's written over 200 sleeve notes for new and reissued albums, and he's been a guest on various TV and radio shows uh, that aren't quite as uh, important as ours, obviously, but places like Channel 4 and Radio 3 Who? and Who? Radio 4. I don't know. I think I'll have to Google them or something. Uh, and he's also written a, an amazing book in the court of King Crimson about the band King Crimson. But why don't we let Sid introduce himself? Thank you very much for joining me, Sid. Uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, uh, well, I'm Sid Smith. Um, I'm a freelance writer, uh, writing about uh, music and musicians. Uh, and I've been doing that for probably, uh, well, prof- I've been doing it professionally for over 20 years, but I've probably been doing that a lot longer. Um, and uh, despite the, the trials and tribulations of freelance work, I, I find that I'm amazingly managed to make a living so uh, which in this day and age uh, you know is, is is something to be applauded uh, I think um, beyond that um, I don't know uh, I'm bald I'm overweight <laughs> I, I, there are various things keep me awake at night 
some of which I might even share with you. But um, but other than that, yeah, um, hello. Hiya. Well, we already have far too much in common, <laughs> both good and bad. <laughs> so I guess what I'll start with uh, is, yeah. I'll start with a question. So what is happiness to you? I think it's about, I mean, this is... This is off the top of my head with no preparation. Um, What does happen? I think it's about being in balance. You know, it's about, it's about kind of, uh, you know, life is such a tightrope or it can be such a tightrope. And so for me, it's about sort of staying, maintaining a balance. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, there's so many people in the world who want to tell you that you're crap. Um, And there's so many um, there's so many times in your life when you know you think that you might be crap, you know. Um, and I think anybody who's a who does anything vaguely creative or in the arts um, will will be aware that there are whisperers on your shoulder uh, for yeah. every single piece of work you ever do. There's a little voice at the side of your head says, "Yeah, that's rubbish, man. You shouldn't be doing that." You should give up, go back to your job at uh, wherever it was that you came from. Yeah. And um, so for me, happiness is about not listening to those voices. It's about maintaining a balance. And it's about, um, it's also about actively, not passively, but actively finding the goodness in things and reminding yourself on a daily basis that actually, you know, things are good. Um, I know the temptation is to be just swamped. Uh, you know, social media will do that. Um, the mainstream media will do that. Um, so it takes a, a bit of um, imagination and courage. And I think the two are absolutely linked together to uh, say, you know what? Uh, I'm aware of all the badness in life and I'm aware of all the things <laughs> that I do wrong on a daily basis. But if you can find happiness, um, you know, and remind yourself to look for happiness every day, things that make me happy, dot, dot, dot. Um, these are positive things. And it's it's about, it helps you stay sane, in my experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think I think one of the tricks you've just uh, said already is that uh, people forget to look for happiness sometimes, don't they? Yeah, 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 for sure. I, th- I think it's I think it's incredibly important to, uh, you know, you get to a point in your life where, um, you know, there's so much in the world that that you have no control over, and uh, I think when you're when you know when you're a young person and you're an idealist and politics, you know, kind of is something that you necessarily engage with um, as a young as a young person. Um, you know, there are various routes that you perceive are possible. I think, I mean, I'm only talking about my own experience. I think for me, as I got older, those kind of external routes to redress the balance of things um, narrowed for me. Um, I didn't yeah. I didn't feel that, you know, politics was is no longer quite the panacea I thought it was, you know, to, to, to finding happiness, you know. Um, but that's not a, a nihilist kind of vision at all. But it, it so for me it was a kind of about well, that doesn't make me happy. That makes me actively unhappy. 
<laughs> uh, every day I, yeah. I look at the, polit the political situation and it makes me unhappy. So, so th that poses an interesting question, I think. So what do you do? Do you stick your head in the sand and pretend everything's fine? Well, not really, no. Uh, you know, I think we're both realists. I think everyone understands what's happening in the world. Um, but it's about what you can do to make it better uh, at a level at which is comfortable for you um, and makes a difference on your in your life. And I'm talking about the personal and the kind of beyond the personal, the, the wider world, as it were. So, you know, put your bins out on Tuesday and don't leave litter strewn around the street. Simple little yeah. thing, but <laughs> amazing how many yeah. people don't do that, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, that's a slightly kind of flip kind of uh, version of that. But you know what I mean. It, it's yeah, about yeah, trying yeah. to find, it's actively looking for the positives. Well, with, with politics, I guess it's such a big stage that sure. you, it's very hard to do anything within your control that can mm. you feel is making a difference. But the smaller things that where you have that level of control and, and ownership, yeah, you know, you instantly aware mm. that you're kind of contributing some good i guess mm. uh, paying it paying things forward you know yeah yeah um I, I i this isn't meant to be kind of smart in any way but you know um the good thing about so you know i sort of said there's lots of bad things on social media but but actually there's so much good stuff on social media the stuff on social media um uh, i've been introduced to artists work who i would never have seen probably on social yeah. media um, not only that, I've I've been so impressed by it, I've gone out and bought it, you know, and and I don't say that to be flippant. I I mean that in a in a very real positive way because mm -hmm. sometimes you buy a piece of work um, of 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 an artist, and that it makes such a difference to you, and you put the work up on your wall or you listen to it, you know, if it's if it happens to be a bit of music. And that makes that's a small transformative event right there, uh, and so so if I walk into my living room downstairs, and I you know I can't help but see the wall you know, and on the wall we've got uh, we've just got a wall of of um, little paintings and photographs by by people as opposed to bought bought off a shop you know do you know yeah. what I mean, uh, so real living artists as it were. And that's just, I mean, every day, you know, that's, that truly is worth its weight in gold. You know, you get a little kick from it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's um, when you do it in that way, when you're not just buying from like a, a large Scandinavian chain store, for example, then you're, um, you get to know the artist and you get to know, you know, the artist gets to know you and it becomes a friendship and, a, and, a, and an ongoing conversation that you're having as well, you know. Or, or not. I mean, it doesn't have yeah. to do that. Yeah, I think yeah. sometimes, I mean, just the act of, um, you know, just sort of seeing somebody else's work and seeing somebody else's... I've got one paint on the wall, which was done like, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and it's that that person, that artist's work um, kind of really resonated with me 40 years ago. And every day, I, literally, that... that I, go into the room and I see the paint up there. I mean, I don't, you know, sort of sit there and genuflect before it, you know. I don't sort of sit and contemplate the, the work before me. But I'm talking about there's a residual kind of energy from it, which mm -hmm. makes me feel good, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it says something about the... 
So I'm always on the lookout for things like that. Going back to your original question, what makes me happy? And on so social media is a fantastic medium for bringing you in contact with music. I, I mean, I write about music. So every day I get gazillions of things, uh, links sent to me through, from record companies and, uh, you know, PR people, etc., etc. And you never buy a piece of music ever again uh, if I didn't want to. Um, but what gives me pleasure is 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 almost on a daily basis there'll be somebody on, on twitter uh will say oh i'm listening to this album and i think oh i've never heard that before you know and and also it's about sometimes where the recommendations coming from you know there are people who i don't know on yeah. twitter but i i feel like i've got a relationship with them because i've been following them for 10 years or something like that and you know they're recommending something and they're they're what they're doing is they're transmitting their joy mm -hmm. their, their their energy uh out there you know where, to the wider world and, and people like me pick up on it and say oh that sounds good uh i'll check that out and i'll go and buy it or i'll download it or whatever the medium happens to be and that's incredibly valuable so it helps counteract some of the for me, you know, some of the oppressive dead weight that, you know, <laughs> swirls around on, on social media and in our lives generally. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. It's, uh, yeah, it can, it's, it's can be an amplifier, can't it, of all those mm. things, good and bad, really. Yeah. Um, are you one of those people that gets goosebumps when you hear a good piece of music? Oh, God, I. I mean, and reliably. I, I, I you know, I can get, um, there are pieces of music, uh, which make me cry at the drop of a hat. I mean, mm. you would think after, you know, I don't know, 50 odd years of listening to a piece of music, you know, you know it inside out. Um, but every time there's a certain point in, in a, one piece in particular, there's a certain point when it comes in, you know, the goosebumps go, uh, depending on, uh, and, and in other pieces of music, it's not about the goosebumps. It's about just the, the bursting of the dam of, of, of tears in a good way. I don't mean the music makes us actively sad, but it engages me with something uh, that's very hard to put into words. But the, mm -hmm. the, the, it's like the music reaches out to you and it pulls you into its world. And its world is is pure and unmediated by all of the rubbish um, and 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 sometimes coming into contact with that kind of purity is uh, you know it's a it's an awe inspiring thing it's it's awesome in the truest sense of the word and uh, yeah there, there are other pieces of music which uh, have uh, personal associations um, there's a I know it's not popular to say this, but there's a piece of music by um, uh, which I associate with rocking my uh, my child when he was a very very when he was a baby, rocking my child to sleep. Uh, and every time uh, if I hear that piece of music come on the radio, or um, uh, you know, or I encounter it somewhere online, doesn't matter what I'm doing. Boom! I get tears, and and they're not tears of sadness or anything, but they're tears of a, a connecting me to a to um, to a particularly special moment. Uh, now, can tears be a thing of? Well, you can have tears of joy. 
yeah, you yeah. know, you can, t- you know, I mean, I know crying and happiness doesn't seem like necessarily um, equal bedfellows or, or expected bedfellows, but actually, dot, 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 they often come from the same place, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, goosebumps a go-go uh, around at my place, I tell you. Yeah, I guess um, there's a presumption that um, happiness and sadness are polar opposites on, on a kind of linear scale. I suppose, but mm. and perhaps they're not. You know, perhaps it's kind of much more entangled than. I think, yeah, than, I'm sure. Than that. It, yeah. It's it's there's a there's a continuum, and and but it's as you say, it's not so cut and dry and straightforward. Yeah, it, it yeah. sometimes moves around. Yeah, I guess this leads to a, a kind of a, a harder question in a way. Even though I did promise you that it would be a light <laughs> conversation at the start, <laughs> um, maybe it's a lie. I'm not sure. I'll find out. Um, but um, what was the happiest time of your life that you can think of right now? I'm aware that that changes on a daily basis for myself, so I don't yeah. think anybody would hold you to it. <laughs> so if you I... don't mention your wedding or the birth of your child <laughs> at this point, don't panic. <laughs> yes. it, well, it, yes, it has to be the birth. You know, no. Um, <laughs> um, it. I don't know if I'm if I'm honest. Uh, what was the happiest time? Of? I think um, it's t- it's important to kind of not be taken in by nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, nostalgia can is you know it's a wonderful thing, and I'm I'm a terrible nostalgic. You know, I mean, I'm forever one foot in the past. So, but but so I'm aware of the allure of nostalgia, but but genuinely, um, one of the happiest moments of my life uh i'll give you one example of in the in the far past um and one pretty recently um one of the happiest moments back in the day for me so this is like mid 70s was there was a um uh there was a, a an american sax player called dexter gordon uh one of the great kind of legends of of, of american jazz and in the 1970s, so I'm talking about 74, 75 maybe. Uh, anyway, he came to Newcastle. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was just like totally kind of sold on on the whole thing. I was listening to a lot of jazz at the time. I was discovering jazz at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at a, a venue uh, called the University Theatre, uh, as used to be in Newcastle. And... Uh, you know, he did the concert. It was part of the Newcastle Jazz Festival. And he did the concert and, uh, you know, everybody's standing applauding and all the rest of it. And he he stands up, to, he gets, gets the microphone. He had a very kind of slow, laconic delivery. And uh, he says, um, he says, I've enjoyed, I mean, I can't do the voice, but he says, <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed playing so much tonight. Um, I'd like to continue would anybody like like more now this wasn't the encore he'd already done the encore anyway fast forward um we the the stage manager comes on and says look this is probably not this is probably not legal so what we're gonna have to do is lock the doors so if you want to go so this is about like 10 30 at night you know and uh he's done two two hours uh of playing uh anyway some people elected to leave and a lot of us elected to stay. So they locked the doors 
and uh, at about two o'clock in the morning I remember coming out and walking home and thinking just this was the most special moment of my life because it was so amazing to be so intimate connected with somebody who was ostensibly a, a, a an almost mythic figure in my head you know and, yeah. but there he was on stage playing for about five hours in total you know um played about three hours beyond his his two hour set you know so that was that was amazing and it stayed with me forever uh and that that feeling of which i'm sure many people you know the the event will change from person to person but everybody knows what it's like to be walking on the clouds yeah you know and so it's that and it was so special and then um more recently um and, and trying not to be too sentimental about it. Uh, my wife, Debbie, um, bought me a birthday present, which for a whole variety of reasons we couldn't do when it, at, the, at the time. Um, but uh, so it got cancelled and moved. And what the, what the present was, was it was a trip to Kielder uh, Dark Sky Observatory. And uh, it was... It was amazing because I hadn't seen the Milky Way for like years, you know. I mean, yeah. and I had such a strong memory of seeing the Milky Way when I was a child, and being totally awed by it, you know, like just looking up in the sky and seeing all this, all this light in the sky cast a, 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 around the heavens. So um, there we were at, at Kielder. We got there in the afternoon, and uh, it was cold because uh, it was like January or February or something. And, of course, you know, you take potluck because of the weather, you know, so you don't know if you're going to see anything or not. Uh, but come the time to kind of, you know, kind of meet the other stargazers who'd assembled, the the clouds just parted. <laughs> and, and it was for the next three hours, you know, I mean, I got a sore neck just just gazing up, like looking through the telescope, looking through the binoculars. But the best thing of all was just looking at the sky and seeing uh, this part of the Milky Way just sort of billowing off in the distance. And it was this vast amount of space and feeling incredibly small, uh, like a tiny little dot, but also somehow feeling totally connected uh, to this um, th this vision of, of, of beauty in heaven and uh, and that I've, I've, I, I don't think I've ever been as happy um, just in in that moment uh, you know and then you know the next day like so you know eventually you get so cold you have to go indoors but <laughs> but but we did we we milked it for all it was worth and it was just yeah, so that's just off the top of my head. I, I dare say if you ask me tomorrow, it'll be, I don't know, it, yeah. finding, a five, finding a fiver yeah. on the Metro platform or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely, um, which is always a good thing if it's ever happened to anybody out there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a brilliant answer. I guess is it, and it, it's, that's kind of linked to a sense of peace, I guess, that, isn't it? The kind of the vastness of things and, and finding, you know, finding your place within that as well and being happy with that it's it's that kind of, i think it's about in actually both examples it seems to me just uh thinking about it now uh, i might be wrong about this but both examples are about um you know the 
the little the little and the large <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it, it, it is about somehow it doesn't matter how um big the legend uh might be but there you are and you're connected to it somehow vicariously perhaps but nevertheless physically there in it sharing a room um and in the in the case of the milky way you know sharing this part of the universe and somehow looking up and feeling connected to it and you're, you're also connecting to other things you're, you're connecting to childhood memories and uh and the, and the special quality that comes from that as i say you know being careful about the the, the dangers of nostalgia um but 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 what you're doing i think is you're you're being present in the moment you know you're not you're not you're not distracted by anything. There's a purity to moments like that. As I say, as to use that word I used earlier, there is a purity to moments like that that bring something as vast as the universe <laughs> down into a little field in Kielder and you're there to 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 be to feel that closeness. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's talk about, you know, goosebumps. Bloody yeah. hell. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I'm just going to kind of take a left turn now, slightly. Sure. And uh, as somebody who's met and interviewed a lot of musicians in your time, I guess, um, without betraying any confidences, obviously, uh, who's the happiest musician that you've met? Um, I think who's the happiest musician I've met or interviewed? Um, I think it's... It, it's always interesting because when you when you're doing interviews, uh, you know there's a formality and there's an artificialness about it, mm -hmm. um, and both both sides of the of the relationship understand that what's you know what what's going on. Uh, so when you ring somebody, it's you know to do an interview, it, you're not ringing, you're not you're not ringing to be be their best mate you know you're you're there to do a job and to ask them sometimes difficult questions and they understand that for the most part the the happiest person i think i've i've ever interviewed uh and i will mention his name mm -hmm. um was a, a, a guitarist called john mclaughlin who came to fame uh, in the late 60s uh, through working with uh, the legendary trumpeter Miles Davis um, and then went on to even bigger fame um, i.e. selling you know literally millions of records uh, with with his band the Mahavishnu Orchestra and when I came to interview John uh, it was many many decades later um, and he was just uh, wonderful he saw, um, you know, John's John's been interviewed like on a on an almost daily basis for fifty odd years. So first of all, you know, talking to me. <laughs> uh, fortunately, it wasn't a day when he when he was doing press. You know, it was a day when I was the only interview uh, um, on on the day. So it wasn't like he had to do because sometimes in you know you have to interview ten. You're, you're, you're just one of a lane of people doing interviews. Yeah. So uh, interviewing John McLaughlin was was amazing. And I came off the phone and I, I, was, I, I was smiling all of the time uh, while he was talking. Didn't matter what he was talking about. Um, and he, he had such a, a, a kind of infectious joy 
which he really kind of conveyed um, mm -hmm. without trying, you know. And um, he he was uh, it was wonderful. And talking to John, talking to John had a kind of a personal aspect to it um, because I'd seen John, uh, I'd met John to to shake his hand and get his autograph in 1973. And um, at the time, I didn't know anything about John McLaughlin. I just knew he was this amazing guitarist. And and uh, I was was at the City Hall and um, my sister was was there. She's a few years older than me. And uh, we were backstage and getting the autographs and trying to see if there was any brown ale on the go. And of course, <laughs> of course there wasn't because they're all vegan and they're all into kind of <laughs> macrobiotics and stuff. So there was it was a very disappointing uh, rider, but anyway, um, we so we said, uh, oh, you know, where are you going tomorrow, kind of thing, and he says, uh, oh, I'm going to Whitley Bay, and we went, what? <laughs> and we didn't know that, like in the fifties, uh, for a short, well, a few years, uh, he lived in Whitley Bay with his mom. You're kidding? Uh, no. I, I, so this is 1973. We had no idea that he lived in Whitley Bay. Uh, in the 50s uh, I mean I thought honestly thought he was an American you know because he had that weird transatlantic -y twang kind of thing um, so my sister uh, being resourceful we've got to remember <laughs> this is 1973 uh, we didn't have a phone at home you know um, there was a woman who lived down the street had a phone and she was the only one in our street who had a phone but my sister worked for a building company and she was a secretary so she just <laughs> she just uh uh, went through the telephone book of all the McLaughlins uh, in the phone book and, you know, third one in, got the right house. And uh, <laughs> th 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 this woman sort of answered the phone, so it said, hello. And uh, she says, is the Mahavishnu there? Because he, he was sometimes <laughs> called the Mahavishnu, uh, by us at least. And she went, hang on, I'll just go and get him. And my <laughs> sister was going, oh, no. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, she puts the phone down. Um, when he came on the phone, he said hello, and she put the phone down because she was sort of so kind of. About it. Um, anyway, what's that got to do with anything? Well, I suppose all these years later, uh, I, I, I've interviewed John McLaughlin a couple of times, and I've never told him that story because why would he be interested? But uh, one of the interviews I did with him um, was I said, "Oh, I'm I, I'm ringing from Whitley Bay," and he went, "Whitley Bay." And he, he just lapsed into this amazing Geordie accent. So, <laughs> uh, so that was great. Anyway, that's a long, rambly story about about somebody who uh, was the happiest person I've interviewed. And it would be it would probably be John McLaughlin. There are other players, uh, but but John McLaughlin is the one that springs to mind. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned uh, City Hall there. Have you got? Is that your happy place in Newcastle? Have you got a happy place in Newcastle? Oh God, that's a <laughs> that's a weird one. Um, yes, happy place in Newcastle. I suppose um, at the moment, right now, me happy place in Newcastle. Not that I've been to Newcastle for yeah, like three months. Yeah, we're all um, shitting at the minute. Yeah, um, me happy place would probably. I don't know if I'm allowed in, to give the name of the shop, but um, oh yeah, it's, go on. It, it, it's it would be RPM Records in the old mm -hmm. George Yard, um, uh, and uh, I love going in there because a the staff are nice, and b um, you know you 
you go in and you don't know what you're looking for, but you know it when you see it. You know, um, I some old record that you used to have 40 years ago and lost, and there it is back in the shelf. So I like I like going to going to uh, RPM Records. That's that's a happy place. The City Hall used to be a happy place for me when I was younger. The City Hall these days, though, is somewhere where I would. Um, uh, I, the seating is so narrow and tight. Yes, <laughs> I find sitting in the city hall um, a bit of a chore, to be honest. Um, so I can't remember the last time I was there, but uh, the last time I was there, I remember having sore knees. Um, they don't seem to accommodate people over six foot, um, or at least people <laughs> people my size over six yeah. foot tall. Yeah, no, I have similar problems. Yeah. Yeah, sitting through a whole concert when your knees are kind of rubbing on the chair in front of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got a, I, I worked with a, with a girl who used to work at RPM. Oh, right. She, she said that um, she would be like on quiet days, they would kind of slowly lose their minds. And somebody put like a heavy metal record on in the afternoon, they'd all start headbanging a bit. <laughs> and she said you could guarantee that's exactly when a customer would walk through the door, catch them like in the most stupid pose possible. <laughs> thus, thus fulfilling every civilian's um, uh, imagined scenario of what goes on in a record shop, you know. <laughs> this this is obviously what staff do all day, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a real fly-on-the-wall moment, I guess. Yeah, brilliant. Um, what do you think a person needs to do to be happy? You've already kind of touched on this earlier about silencing that inner critic and silencing the person that tells you you can't do stuff. But... What what kind of daily activities would you recommend? Seriously, um, you know, everybody has their own practice. Uh, yeah. Some some people, uh, you know, will meditate. Um, others will will exercise vigorously and strenuously. Um, before lockdown, uh, I, I mean, people who know me would would guffaw at the thought of me. Um, going to a gym and and sitting on a bike and uh, and other implements of torture um, <laughs> but but actually seriously um exercising at the gym was a was a fantastic way of feeling great and being coming out of it really energized and and full of positivity um you know not least of all because of you know you your brain releases endorphins and that makes you feel happy, etc., etc. Um, the other thing, uh, without wanting to sound too poor-faced about it, um, I've always loved poetry. Mm -hmm. And I I like to, I don't necessarily do this consciously, but I have a, you know, I, I've got a few books of poetry. And the great thing about uh, that I've collected, like, since the 70s, and in one in one particular volume, it was my original volume that I, uh, uh, my mom had bought for me in the sixties. Um, and so I, for me personally, I like, you know, sitting down with a cup of tea uh, at the start of the day before I do any work, and I'll just pick up randomly one of the books of poetry that I've got. Uh, the thing about poetry. You know, there's a bit of a kind of oh, poetry, oh, you know, that's that's. <laughs> but uh, it's just words, and and it's about just the way the words work to you on paper, 
uh, and what you get out of it. Um, so some days I'll, you know, and I just read these things randomly and I don't do it for long, but I do try and do it every day. And it feels like a good thing to do to me because I encounter words which can sometimes make a series of connections which I would never have got to at that point in the morning or, or the day, uh, which in turn can sometimes give you, I'm going to use the P word, um, can give you a profound insight into what it is to be alive. Now, that doesn't happen every day. Um, but I figure if you can put yourself uh, you know, in a, in a space where that could happen, then that's not a bad way to start the day. And uh, I, you know, I mean, I, how long does it take you to drink a cup of tea? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I like my tea quite cool. So, you know, a cup of tea can last me 10 minutes, you know, other people wolf it down. But that's about the length of time I put into reading a book of poetry. And then, you know, I, I, and it's totally at random. I don't have, I mean, I have favourites and stuff, but it's not about reading your favourite poems. It's about every day you're discovering something new. Um, yeah. And I find that, I, I mean, it sounds a bit kind of artsy-fartsy putting it like that, but but the actual act of just sitting down for a moment and picking and and engaging with something over which you have no preconceptions and in many cases no knowledge of you, you turn the you open the book at random you turn the page and there's some words what are you going to do well you're going to read them um and sometimes you read it and you think that means <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's fine yeah uh, that's yeah. also part of it um but you, so then you randomly open another page and like i say you know it's it happens more than you might think you read something and you think oh god yeah 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 that's that's it that's what that's mm -hmm. about and um so for me that's often a a way of um of 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 unburdening or unlocking myself to be to open myself up to to the good things that, that yeah. might occur in the day. Yeah, yeah. In a way, do you feel that helps to be more present for, for those things? Yeah. I, I mean, try and, you know, there's, if you lie in bed all day, um, you know, that can be quite nice, you know, lying in bed all day, <laughs> so I'm told. I'm one of these people, I, 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 unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm cursed. I have to, I, you know, any in the summer, anytime from five o'clock, I'm you know, might be up. Yeah. Um, but for me, that's not a burden uh, because it means that, um, you know, we've got a tiny, we we moved house a couple of years ago and where we live has literally a tiny, tiny garden. It's like about, it's got to be about what, three or four foot, uh, you know, like uh, in width and maybe, you know, maybe 10 foot in length. Um, but we've, consciously fill that garden with beautiful flowers and 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 all the rest of it um and so you sit there and the, if you're lucky there's a bit of sun and you sit with your cup of tea and you're surrounded by bees going backwards and forwards and you've got your bit poetry book and you don't know what the poem's going to be and you sit there that's not a bad way to kind of get into the day yeah that's an that's an excellent way to start the day i would say um and also the get the getting up in the early in the morning is a writer's thing i find yeah. when any writers are spoken to there's a myth of the writer with kind of a bottle of whiskey and the typewriter up until like five o'clock in the morning working 
No. But and most writers that are productive that I know are the ones that, that get up early and use the time in the morning because they're not burdened by the world in a way. The, the amount of times that this is true, I don't care if people kind of don't believe it. <laughs> there's there's a there's a thing which reliably happens uh, whereby uh, you know I can't remember what the quote is, but there's a you know most writing uh, the percentage of time you actually spend writing is quite short. Most of your writing is done in your head, thinking about what you're going to write. Um, and for me, there's a thing that reliably happens where I will be. You know, in that half awake, half asleep moment in the, in the dawn, and you you kind of you're conscious that you're waking up, but you're actually still asleep. Uh, in those moments, I I have seen finished articles on a page, and I, I will go to them, and I can read the first paragraph, and I can read the the last paragraph, and then I'll ping awake. And I'm, I'm lucky because my desk is, my office is literally next door to the bedroom. And I will just pad out of bed, come in, sit down, bush, and I've got the beginning of my piece and the end of the piece. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the amount of times that that happens, um, it, 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 you know, it happens a lot to me. And that moment, um, the, the, the early morning, I think your subconscious is still kind of pushing its way into the, into the real world. And yeah. it's not so kind of encumbered by all the all the nonsense that goes on in your head and, and weighs you down um, or gets in the way. Uh, so there is that like lovely moment of clarity. That's the word. There's a clarity to first thing in the morning. There's something to do with light for sure. You know, I mean, the, the rising of the sun. Uh, it's about rebirth of ideas and renewal and all the rest of it. So for me, that's a perfect time to be writing. I had a deadline this week and, uh, you know, I've been given plenty of time. And, uh, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I always leave it to the last moment. I, I do. Uh, it's just after doing this for 20 odd years, I know what my process is. So if you tell me uh, the deadline is next Monday, you can bet your bottom dollar I won't start <laughs> writing until Monday morning. And uh, uh, so that works for me. It doesn't work for any everybody, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but but if you, you find what works for you and you kind of go with it. I would love to be the kind of writer that sits with a bottle of, of whiskey and, <laughs> and, 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 and knocks it out. I would also yes. love to be a writer who can just bash words out. The only yeah. time I ever bash words out, like literally to order, uh, it happened earlier this week. There's a, a, a usually um, I, I often get asked to write obituaries. Um, mm. So by their nature, they're done at very short notice um, uh, because there's a certain urgency to getting some word out about a person's uh, contribution and career. Uh, so this week there was a, a, a wonderful musician uh, passed away and, uh, you know, I got an email from the editor saying, can you do some words? Uh, and it needs to be done tomorrow morning kind of thing. Uh, so you get up and you just, you know, you bash the words out. Um, no, normally I'm not like that. <laughs> normally I have to drag the words out kicking and screaming. But, but they, you know, that's, that's part of the process and, it, and I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Yeah, that, no, I, I mean, as, as somebody who also works uh, as a curator and puts opportunities out there for artists, 
I've seen a pattern in that the it's not always the case. There are some artists who are really prolific and on the ball. I'm not one of those people either. <laughs> but they're on the ball and you get good applications and good proposals and good work from them immediately. But on average, the better proposals come in at the last minute because they've used that other time as thinking time. Like you say, you know, you're not just writing isn't just about the, the creation of words on a sheet of paper. It's about no. everything that leads to that as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There, there, is, there is one thing. Uh, there is one thing I, w I would say about 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 writing from from my perspective, not anybody mm -hmm. else's, is um, I don't always think what I've written. Ninety nine point nine percent of the time, I don't like what I've written, um, and it's always a compromise. So sometimes I feel it's a compromise. And then you send it out there and, and, you know, I'll say to Debbie, I'll say, well, that'll probably come back, you know, and I won't, you know, I'll have to rewrite that. Mm -hmm. um, but nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, it doesn't come back and yeah. people read it and then you get lots of feedback saying, oh, that's great. Oh, that's a good piece. Yeah. And what that means is I have no idea really as to, sometimes I can tell that what I've written is decent. It's of a good standard, but but I don't really know. Um, part of that going to happiness, um, I would say there's another element of uh, about what how what happiness is, and happiness can also sometimes be about compromising uh, mm -hmm. and knowing when to compromise. So uh, I can I can spend hours of my life, days of my life, weeks of my life, torturously going over words to to searching for the final version where I'm happy. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes that's too late, <laughs> you know, because the deadline was last week. So so it, you've got to hit the deadline and you think to yourself, well, I'm as happy as I can be with that, mm -hmm. it, given the time and given my way of working. Um, so sometimes happiness is about, you know, no one went to compromise or, or on, a, on a situation. And that, that can read through to other aspects of say personal relations um mm -hmm. you can't always get what you want mm -hmm. you can't always you know but you you know but you can you can get to that sound like a song isn't it you can't always get what you want. <laughs> but if you try anyway whatever the um whatever whatever it is i'm trying to say um but it, it so sometimes compromise you know compromise is a dirty word often um but not necessarily you know yeah. sometimes it's good it's a good thing to compromise and then both sides of the of the divide can be happy fab well thanks sid um if you've got anything that you're working on that you want to share or how can people find out more about you or what projects you're working on uh okay um you can uh you can find me on twitter um at the sid smith um mm -hmm. and uh, i'm also on facebook although i increasingly wonder why um mm. But uh, but Twitter I like, um, and mm -hmm. I'm I'm a I'm a vigorous Twitterer, um, <laughs> and or I try to be, um, and one of the things that gives me pleasure and makes me happy is I take lots of photographs, um, and I just take them with me daughter's old iPhone that she gave us, mm -hmm. and um, 
I like taking photographs. That makes that's another thing that makes me happy, mm-hmm. and uh, I like putting them up on Twitter. And sometimes other people like them as well, which also makes me happy. <laughs> so, um, and in terms of other work, uh, if anybody out there has a burning desire to read a six hundred page book about a band called King Crimson, then I am your man. Uh, <laughs> I, last year I published uh, or, uh, a biography of the band King Crimson, which uh, so far uh, has done very well um, and uh, worldwide sales, etc., etc. So I'm very happy about that. Um, so if you're into King Crimson, then that's the book. The book is called In the Court of King Crimson, uh, an observation over 50 years and uh, available from you know, all good outlets. Fantastic. And that was Sid. So, Alex, what did you make of that? What a great interview, Dom. Good job. That was that was great. I could listen to Sid all, all day. He had such a great voice and a great just way of telling stories. He was really, yeah. really good. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like sort of right at the very beginning, he was sort of talking about being in balance and maintaining balance and actively finding the goodness in things. And I thought that was really, really interesting. A bit like what a few other people that we've talked about have, have said about that contentedness and being on an even keel. I liked, I liked that. Yeah, that was interesting because um, he's talking about the good and the bad voice, the one that tells you to keep going and the one that tells you, you know, good. and. A lot of artists and a lot of creative people, I think, a lot of people in general have that, you know, anybody who's actively trying to do something or achieve something will have that internal critic that can get out of control sometimes yeah. and, and yeah. lead to paralysis, to, to not being able to do stuff. It's really interesting how his, appro- his approach to getting things done. And like the like we talked about in one of the earlier episodes with Anne Cleves, he's another writer who gets up really early in the morning. Yes, as well. Yeah, I noticed that as well. And um, yeah. I liked when you were talking sort of towards the end about the process, the writing process. And yes, exactly that that idea of actually, no, I'm I'm most productive sort of earlier on rather than working sort of late mm-hmm. into the night. And I really, I could really relate to what you were saying about you know he often doesn't like what he's written. Um, yeah. or doesn't think what he's written is any good but then he'll yeah. show it to other people and they they are really positive about it and I think it he then sort of talked about compromise as well um mm-hmm. and sort of searching for that final version and I, I just had flashbacks of being back at university <laughs> writing essays and dissertations mm-hmm. and it's that whole knowing when to stop mm-hmm. knowing when to stop tweaking um, yeah, because you'll kind of write a first draft and yeah, make make amends, and it's it's just sort of knowing when when you've just leave it. That's it. Yeah, it's done. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's a problem with um, people who have got taste as well. I think if you've got good taste and you like good writing and you know what good writing is, then it's quite hard to get up in the morning and do it yourself because you're always aware of that you might not be hitting the standards of excellence that others are hitting. Yeah. But what we forget is that people only hit that five or six times in their entire life. They'll get it right, you know, but you'll never get there if you don't do the work. Yeah. So you've just got to keep going, you know. Mm. So. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I, every day is a school day, and I found that <laughs> bit about the obituaries as well really 
interesting yeah. but of course really obvious you don't get a, a long turnaround time to write an obituary it has to be done really quickly but it was something yeah. that i'd never really kind of thought about either yeah uh, and i yeah. thought it was really interesting hearing him talk about that yeah unless you're the queen <laughs> <laughs> i always find it really odd when yes when somebody high profile has died that day mm-hmm. there is then always a tribute on bbc one it's like have you had this kind of in the back catalogue, ready, waiting. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, I think when Dame Vera Lynn died or something, it was a. Uh, all of a sudden there was this uh, program yeah. about her on BBC. Anyway, yeah. maybe we don't put that in. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought the obituary stuff was really interesting. Um, yeah. And I think he finds joy when we were sort of talking about those little moments as well. He was talking about sort of popping into RPM records mm. and finding those unexpected records you know something that you've you've lost and you you rediscover um and as we know from my accent i'm not from around these parts i grew up uh, in a place called kingston down in london and there was a great Mm -hmm. record shop called beggar's banquet um Mm -hmm. very similar to rpm and yeah as a teenager i used to love sort of going in and just yeah rifling through the uh the uh, the shelves looking for things and buying gig yeah. tickets you know when you had to buy gig tickets in in record yeah. shops rather than you know queuing up online so brought back some great memories for me yeah well thanks for that Don that was great I loved it I will I might have to listen to that again because it was uh, yeah so interesting <laughs> so thank, thank you. you. So if you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then we would love to hear from you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thegeordieguidetohappiness.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Geordie Guide or on Facebook, The Geordie Guide to Happiness. Next week, we'll be interviewing Elaine Slater, who is the CEO of Tyneside Women's Health, which is a charity which supports the mental health and emotional well-being of women. They've got centres in Biker and Gateshead, and I met with Elaine recently at their Biker Centre to talk about mental health and happiness, as well as what she does to maintain her own mental well-being and happiness. So you'll hear me ask Elaine questions like this. What is happiness for you? And hear her give answers like this. Um, I've got a little nephew who's hilarious. He's only five. Um, so and so the kind of seeing the world through a child's eyes and the kind of that innocence and playing, you know, we have a lovely game called Dinosaur Hospital that we play. He's obsessed with dinosaurs. Oh, you have to tell you what dinosaur <laughs> hospital is. I know I've got pictures of Dinosaur Hospital. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Geordie Guide to Happiness so far. Take care and see you again for another episode. Mm-hmm.